Konnichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric, and as always, thank you so, so much for tapping in today's podcast. Whether this is your first time or you've listened to every episode, your listenership means a lot to us, and I mean that sincerely. I swear I'll stop saying it soon, but as we are around one year of doing this, in fact, tomorrow is our first birthday, we have been looking at what you, the audience, has enjoyed based on how many people have listened to the episodes and watched what videos on YouTube, and we are trying out some new stuff and going back to things we haven't visited in a while. Still, to this day, our first ever series of The History of Board Games is far and away the most downloaded set of podcast episodes, so we thought we would go back to the ever-growing wealth of knowledge that is history for today's episode. More specifically, we are going to talk about the history of war games. A quick Google search lands us at a couple different spots in history that people say is the starting point for war game history. For some, it's Germany. Others go back further to chess, and still others go back to ancient Egypt's Senate. Now, if you recall from episode one of this very podcast, we talk in depth about Senate, and that historians now believe that it was more of a religious game played possibly to determine one's fate rather than a war game. So I don't like that as our starting point today. Granted, I get that it was the first board game, so all board games followed, but I think that's the extent of it. Chess and Go make a whole lot more sense as direct ancestors to today's war games. We also talked about these more in depth during our History of Board Games series, so I'm not going to go too much into it here. But one theory of why Go was invented was for generals and warlords to map out attacking positions. So if we go by this theory, and that this game came before chess, this should be the answer to where war games came from, right? But I don't really like this either, because writings don't start of the West picking up this game until Thomas Hyde wrote about it in 1694. And even then, it wasn't really fully explained in detail for a Western audience until the late 1800s, a couple hundred years after war games had already been developed. I believe that chess is really where wargame history began. It was a game that was popular, spread across countries and cultures, and as we talked about in our episode about chess, was changed to resemble whatever military units that country had, making it an excellent game for war strategy. On the chessboard, the battlefield is level, the pieces do the same thing every time, the winning and losing solely rests on the players, their intellect, and their preparation. Because chess has the same starting positions and piece movements, players devoted time to studying books about the game, which started being published in the 10th century, with names that sound not too uncommon from warlike flanking, defense, or, as I learned from a certain Netflix series, a gambit. But even as chess as we know it today was developing, and offshoots sprung up with thousands of squares on it and new types of pieces introduced, there was a problem that made this not a very good game at simulating war. It's fixedness. This precision that its players loved, studied, the very reason why chess was something to show off one's intellectual prowess with, well, it made it a good game, but not a good war game. The pieces moved the same every time. Any piece could capture any other piece the same way, and that capture was unnatural and absolute. In other words, it wasn't warlike. One of the first attempts at changing was kind of not great, made by Reinhard Zussolms, which I'm going to really butcher some names today. I am sorry to the German people. He designed a card game where each card represented different military units, and you would arrange them in different formations against each other, and then argue about whose was better. It wasn't very good, as, well, there were no rules, so no way for people to determine which troop formation was actually better. Not a good game, and not very helpful for military tacticians. In fact, it would take a couple centuries for people to get it right. The big breakthroughs came between 1780 and 1810, 
when new ways to strategize were becoming more and more important. As weapons like firearms improved, chess became less and less realistic as a way of simulating and more just a pastime. The first was the idea of various terrains. Johann Helwig, a German mathematician and aristocrat, came up with the idea of randomizing the terrain tiles as a way of teaching military personnel. And this early war game introduced other concepts like having miniatures representing the infantry, cavalry, and artillery, and the mechanics of supply and support. Soon after, Johann Venturini introduced weather as a mechanic to further the realism. But there is still something too mechanical about the combat of these games, which to this point still use chess mechanics. Even though they were widely successful, one of the sticking points of what made chess combat unrealistic was its predictability, or at least that each piece did what it was supposed to do every single time. The pawn always moved how you wanted, and successfully captured when it could. One way of making this more warlike was developed by Giacomo Opiz of Bohemia, and it was a development we take lightly today. He introduced dice to determine the outcomes of battles. What this did was introduce the idea of the fog of war, that even the best troops could fail and the weak could prevail. That things happened in war that even the most prepared general could not have expected. This irritated Helvig, who had gone on to sell many copies of his version of his game and thought a randomizing factor made the game less elegant. But as important as these variations were, there is no denying that in 1810, the first really major step in war game development came. Lieutenant George von Reiswitz of Prussia changed the chess-like board from a flat surface to a three-dimensional diorama of terrain, including rivers, forests, and hills. The board was to scale so that players had to take into account pace, an important thing to think about as armies moved on foot. We see early forms of miniatures in this game, although there were mostly painted placeholders that were just marked as different units, but it was a start. Different rules govern these different military units as well. But what was exceptionally interesting to me was that, besides movement, there weren't really that many rules in the manual. The fog of war came in two ways, one of them being the dice that von Reiswitz used as in Opis's war games. But the bigger thing was the use of an umpire. Players would write down the orders for their troops and hand that paper to the umpire, and the umpire would do with them as they interpreted those writings. Unclear instructions, therefore, would be deadly for one's game. The umpire was also the person who ruled over results of conflict, including ambushes. Von Reiswitz called this game War Game. Well, okay, he called it Kriegspiel, because he spoke German, but that just translates to War Game. Unlike Helwig, von Reiswitz really wasn't planning on doing anything with this game. That is, until a military captain heard of the game and mentioned it during a lecture at the Berlin Military Academy. And who would be in the audience but two sons of King Friedrich Wilhelm III, who surprisingly to von Reiswitz, asked for him to come to the Berlin Palace and demonstrate the game. They were so excited by what they saw that they wanted him to demonstrate it for their father as well. Von Reiswitz, whom I sure was a little flustered by the response to this game he had made to play with his friends, asked for some time to put together a proper, nice-looking version of the game, sending his nervousness of his prototype making the trip intact. He arrived a year later with a six-foot version of the game with hand-painted terrain that could be rearranged to give replayability and randomness, porcelain miniatures, rulers, and boxes to hide troops that realistically the opposing forces wouldn't be able to see based on where they were on this board. The king loved it, and he became a freaking hobby for him, with the king even mentioning that it gave him ideas for future army maneuvers. But it fell off after a bit of time, that is, until von Reiswitz's son, George, who was an artilleryman, got hold of the game and made some improvements. 
including replacing the terrain with real maps of terrain so they could recreate real battles, adding rules for nighttime attacks and blowing up bridges. I mean, there were rules for creating bridges too, but also blowing up bridges. George got data of how well weapons worked so that players had to factor in probabilities for their artillery and gunfire. Again, these were really made for his friends at his local wargame meetup, but he was invited to the Berlin Palace, where, to his surprise, the entire top tier of Prussian military, including the chief of the general staff, Karl von Muffling, was in attendance. Von Muffling is noted as saying, This is not a game. This is a war exercise. I must recommend it to the whole army. This is how it became the first, and very much not the last, war game to be used to train the military. After a surprise victory in the Franco-Prussian War, which France thought they would easily win with superior weaponry, the Prussians credited their victory on the game that enabled their officers to act quickly, as they had seen these situations before on the board. It was for this reason that other countries, including the Austrians, Russians, Americans, and even the French started playing Kriegspiel. It was translated into English in 1872 by Wilhelm von Sischwitz. Oxford started a club in 1873, and the U.S. Naval War College started using it for training purposes, including simulating what would happen in a clash with Great Britain. In fact, it was this simulation that propelled research into long-range weaponry, as the game kept predicting catastrophic losses for the U.S. But probably nobody in the early 1900s made use of war games as a serious way of strategizing, as much as the Japanese. They noticed in their games that the Russian fleet at Port Arthur would make a great surprise attack location, as in wintertime, the sea around Russia would trap the ships at other locations. In 1904, they did exactly that and won the Russo-Japanese War, forcing Russia to leave Port Arthur, Korea, and Manchuria. Now this sounds like a distant problem. Oh, stupid Russia, how could you have been so foolish? But not so. Because at the 1941 Tokyo War Games, a secret room was filled with 30 of Japan's highest officers, using a version of the game to rehearse how to beat the US and attack Pearl Harbor. The officers were split in the room, as to whether the plan was even a good one, and whether it worked or not in the game would determine what they would do. In the first run, they got destroyed. Badly. Did not work. At all. But the second time, they ran through it, and then the third time, it did. Capitalizing on when the air patrols went back at sunset, they would get within striking distance undetected. They used this plan on December 7th, 1941, to sink 18 ships, destroy 200 planes, and kill more than 2,000 Americans. And still, war games are used to simulate battles and devise strategies. You can actually listen to us talk about it a bit more in our episode titled Quick Hits, The Badass Wrens of World War II. But how did these games meant to train soldiers get into people's homes? How did they become, shall we say... Fun? Most likely the first real push was 1913's Little Wars, written by H.G. Wells. Yes, that H.G. Wells, the guy behind the World of Worlds. As accurate as war games were becoming for soldiers, this won prized action as you could play on the floor with toy soldiers and spring-loaded cannons. But these two things called World War I and World War II put a damper on people playing war. Just didn't seem fun at the time. It would take until the 1950s for the next wargaming innovations to take place. And it's here that modern-day wargaming really quickly starts to take shape, one of which in a way that I don't think gets enough credit in wargaming history. It was a French director named Albert Lamorissé who, on a family vacation, came up with a game called Conquest of the World. Players would use Napoleonic armies and navies in a bid to, like Brain and the Animaniacs, take over the world. But the catch was that every single contest was based on die rolls. Score lower, lose a unit. He sold this game to game publisher Miro, and it was Jean-Ron Vert it tasked to clean it up a little bit. No more navies, and we need to favor defense, he said. Okay, done. 
It went on sale in 1957 in France. They showed it to Parker Brothers to see if they would be interested in selling it in the U.S. They very much were, but they had one problem with it. It took so dang long. The game wasn't fun, as players would take hours to maybe chip off one defender here or another there. So they decided the game should favor attackers, limiting defenders by not allowing them to use more than two dice in combat. Okay, that was that. Now for the name. Hmm, ah, world domination and going on an all-out attack is definitely not a safe option. I'd say it's a risk. Risk was launched in 1959, costing three and a half times the price of other board games. However, it sold over 100,000 copies in its first year, and now sits on lists of best-selling board games of all time. But we had to back up, back again, to the early 1950s, because as Risk and its influences goes down one path, there was another path that history created. In 1952, Charles Roberts joined the National Guard, and upon finding a lack of war games to play, created his own, called Tactics, which had two fake nations going up against each other. There would be a table that, after rolling the dice, you would see the result based on the ratio of attackers to defenders. He would sell this game out of his garage in Maryland for the next couple of years. Oh, I guess it would be good for me to tell you the town name, Avalon. And it was here that in 1958, Roberts founded Avalon Hill, a game company he said was dedicated to producing complex games for adults. It was around the same time that Jack Scrooby started selling historically accurate miniatures out of his home in California. He also organized the first miniatures convention, which had a rough start with an attendance of only 14 people but his models that he created in 1963 would become the standard until the mid-90s. But he also worked with Donald Featherstone on Wargames Digest. Between this and Avalon Hill's The General, Wargaming was becoming a growing, yet still niche, hobby. Featherstone himself started the first UK Wargames Expo, and wrote more than 40 books on wargaming and military history. Some of these include Wargaming, Advanced Wargames, Wargame Campaigns, Battles with Models Tanks, and Skirmish Wargaming. It's interesting how history overlaps, because Featherstone was inspired to get into wargaming by Little Wars, a game made by a pacifist who wanted wargames to replace the want for real war. Featherstone ended up splitting from Scrooby as Featherstone wanted wargaming to remain a pastime, not a way to train soldiers. Again, a replacement for real war. To his credit, he later changed his opinion on the subject. But another overlap came by who his opponents were when he played Little Wars, his first being his brother, but his second being a man named Tony Bath. Tony Bath came up with a set of rules, very cleverly called the Tony Bath rules, that allowed players to play in a medieval setting for a fast-moving, enjoyable game. These rules would later be in Featherstone's war games. This rule set was an inspiration for a guy called Gary Gygax to write Chainmail, which was a medieval miniatures game. But more than that, the various iterations and locales, the various supplements like the fantasy supplement which included mythical creatures, was the inspiration for Gygax to make a little game called Dungeons & Dragons. And it was Dungeons & Dragons that saw Wargaming get knocked down, but get back up again. You ain't never gonna keep it down. A shop in the UK got the rights to import Gygax's D&D, and decided that with the game, they should have models to go with it. This company was Games Workshop. John Peake, Ian Livingstone, and Stephen Jackson were the founders. After Peake left, the company needed income, and in 1983, Games Workshop decided to no longer separate rules writer and miniature creators, but have them work together. And it was from this that the Warhammer universe was created. First with Warhammer Fantasy, but later with one of the best-selling war games internationally, Warhammer 40k. Warhammer Fantasy ran until 2015 is now in the Age of Sigmar, but Warhammer 40k is still going, with it being in its ninth edition. Of course, throughout the time, Games Workshop has become the absolute dominant company in miniatures wargaming, with Warhammer being its most profitable line, but also Space Hulk, Necromunda, and Space Marine. Their novellas sell well too, with over 200 being printed at the time of this recording. 
setting up background lore for all the battles. But perhaps one of the most intricately linked parts of their games is their model proprietary system that requires only their models. But the past couple years has seen some shift with the added pressures of many indie design games and historical wargaming being model agnostic, meaning you can use any model, as well as the development of 3D printing at home. But there's one other company that I would be remiss to not at least mention here, the Kickstarter before Kickstarter company, founded by Gene Billingsley, Mike Crane, and Terry Shrum. Well, you probably know this company better by their first initials, GMT Games. Founded in the 1990s, GMT pioneered the P500 system, where customers would need to pre-order the game. Once they received a certain amount of pre-orders, they would make the game. As Wargaming was in a down phase, this allowed GMT Games to continue their success where others didn't. They have developed some of the most daunting yet still heard about types of games, like the 18xx games, which are games in which players invest in railroad companies and construct railways, coin games, or counterinsurgency games, the Panzer series, Dominant Species, Battle Line, and their highest rated game which used to be number one on BGG, Twilight Struggle. And here is where we once again come full circle. We get back to not using dice for combat or to gain land. It is card-driven. Part of what brings people into games like Twilight Struggle is that the cards make it more accessible and cheaper to get into than these big miniature war games. And that seems to be how wargaming is going. It is increasingly getting thrust into the general hobby board gaming sphere after spending most of its days in military schools. You heard that Twilight Struggle used to be number one, but more games that take influence from wargaming have become some of the most popular games of recent years. Root is a game designed by Cole Worley that, I don't want to say tricks, but it tricks people into playing a coin game. By playing cute woodland creatures and featuring amazing art by Kyle Farron, all while being card-driven to keep costs down but still having animal figures to move around, Root became, and really still is, all the hotness. With each new expansion, there's a new faction to learn, to control, to strategize with. And for many, including myself, it took a very intimidating genre of games, coin games, and made it seem accessible and interesting. Don't get me wrong, Root is not a light game, but the theme made me want to try it at least. And theme is becoming more and more important as well. At the time of recording, one of the hottest games is Votes for Women, a game designed by Tori Brown and published by Fort Circle Games, in which, to win, the suffragist player must have Congress pass the proposed amendment and then have three-fourths of the state, which is 36 of the then 48 states, ratify the amendment. The opposition player wins by either preventing Congress from passing the proposed amendment or by having 13 states reject the amendment. For many of the reviews, it plays like 1960, Making of a President, a GMT game but with winning conditions that make a lot more sense, and for many, a better theme. This again is getting people interested, even if they had not been interested in wargaming and its offspring before. Miniature games make great IP choices as well, as we've seen the likes of Star Wars X-Wing and Armada, Marvel Crisis Protocol, and even Batman give Games Workshop a run for their money. The point is that today, we have gotten into wargaming that would hardly look recognizable when looking back at chess. Worldwide, countries still have war colleges and top-secret government facilities for using war games to strategize and come up with new maneuvers. And at home, more people are getting interested in trying wargaming, whether it be from Parker Brothers Risk that promotes aggressive fast play, sprawling worlds with lower and expensive but incredible miniatures like Warhammer 40k, games about historical events like Votes for Women, or games with cute animal creatures like Root. Today is a golden age in wargaming, with conventions, meetups, and lots of people waiting to play with you. The name, Wargaming, sounds intense, and it definitely requires deep strategy. But if you've ever thought about getting into it, you couldn't have picked a better time in history than today. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a review on your podcast feed and check us out on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. 
I'll only do this once a month from now on, but for this week for the launch, I just want to mention again that we have launched a Patreon, in which you can vote on what games we cover and get a free bonus video every month. So check it out if you're interested. Thank you again. See you next time. Done.